So burnout is real. Measuring small wins prevents burnout. Why? Because internally you start feeling like you're accomplishing something towards the goal or, or how does that help? Like, why does that matter? So our motivation is driven by a variety of things in our brains and in our environment, but the chemical that is more closely related to it is dopamine. And when we celebrate effort and when we celebrate small wins rather than just overall achievement, what we do is we give ourselves a little hit of dopamine. We give ourselves a little drip of that. And what that does over time is it raises our overall reservoir of dopamine. Everybody here that's listening has some reservoir of dopamine. Some have more, some have less. And when we tap into that to get us motivated, it diminishes our dopamine. This is where things get really, really complicated. It diminishes our dopamine a little bit, but then that dip in dopamine then leads to action or inaction. We make a decision like we want to pursue that thing. Hey, my name is Stacey Havener. I'm obsessed with startups, stories, and sales. Storytelling has fueled my success as a female founder in the toughest boys club, Wall Street. I've raised over 8 billion that has led to 30 billion in follow-on assets for investment boutiques. You could say against the odds. Yeah, understatement. I share stories of the people behind the portfolios while teaching you how to use story to shape outcomes. It's real talk here. Money, authenticity, growth, setbacks, sales and marketing are all topics we discuss. Think of this as the capital raising class you wish you had in college, mixed with happy hour. Pull up a seat, grab your notebook, and get ready to be inspired and challenged while you learn. This is the Billion Dollar Backstory Podcast. When I talk to some founder fund managers, there is a perception that building a boutique should be pretty easy. Let's play it out. They're thinking, I was a really good portfolio manager at a really big firm. I had a great track record and managed a lot of assets. The clients and dollars at my new co are going to roll in fast and furious. They have a short game mindset. The problem is building an investment boutique is a long game. And entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Today's guest is Michael Futterman, an organizational psychologist that ran practice management and leadership development programs for some of the largest asset managers in the world. Think $250 billion, $600 billion, even a $3 trillion firm. Now, he's a founder and coach for entrepreneurs and execs in the investment and wealth management space. Today is a session we all need. It's part business coaching, part therapy session, and all kinds of inspiration. If you've ever felt like, dang, this founder or leadership thing is a grind, today's episode is for you and me. Take a deep breath, my friends. This is hard work but it's work that matters. And as crazy as it is, when you are in the ups and downs of entrepreneurship or leading a team, remember, we don't have to do this. We get to. Grab a notebook and get ready to be coached. Meet my friend, Michael Futterman. Hi, everyone. Michael, thank you so much for being here. This is a true 
honor for me. You and I have had a chance to chat, and I'm thrilled to be able to welcome our listeners into the conversation today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's dive right into my favorite part, which is your backstory. You know, what was the journey that got you sitting here now in this chair as a founder yourself, really, helping other executives and founders on their journey? So how did this come to be? Yeah, I got to take you way back on this one. If I pulled out my diploma, some people have their diplomas on their wall. I don't have it. Um, You've got yours? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. It's totally good. (laughs) I just, I'm not one of those guys that got it like framed, but it says I really should have it now. Now that I'm doing what I'm doing, I feel like I should go back and pull it out because literally on my diploma, my undergraduate, it says recreation on it. That was my undergraduate degree. I love that. I either get that reaction or I get people chuckling at it. And it was a degree, it was really half liberal arts credits and the other half were around recreation, which is there's experiential education, which is what I focused on. And then there's um, therapeutic recreation and all these other areas. What I wanted to be was a backcountry guide. I thought that I was going to be guiding people, you know, up Everest or taking them, you know, on these far-flung journeys. And what I came to realize is that I like my creature comforts a little bit too much to make that a career. Um, And I found that it's really important to embrace who you are. And uh, I realized that that was not necessarily going to be the path that I wanted to follow. But what I did do is I ended up working as a field instructor for an organization called Outward Bound. And I don't know if your audience is is familiar. I know that you are. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't know, Outward Bound is an organization that's been around since the early 1950s, and it really encourages people to challenge themselves in unfamiliar environments, typically outdoor environments, and it's really designed to help people embrace the possibility of who they could be through these really unique experiential outdoor experiences, whether it's sailing or backpacking or rock climbing or canoeing or any of that type of stuff. So I was a field instructor for them, and I focused in New York City which is kind of strange. You would think that's not a very outdoorsy type of place. But half of the time that I was there, I spent working with part of the New York City school system uh, in providing experiential education for children. So if they were studying, say, physics, we would take them rock climbing and teach them about, well, if you fall from that height, you're going to accelerate and hit the ground at this velocity if you didn't have your safety equipment on. The other half of it was working with executives. A lot of times those executives were in financial industries. Other times they weren't, but it was really all around helping them to explore the possibilities of team building and group dynamics. And um, I did that for a while until I got tired of making (laughs) $20,000 living in New York City, which was challenging. And so I went and I got work at a boutique consulting firm and I learned all about the process of apprenticeship. And uh, I would describe this as business. So I put that in air quotes, obviously, to there's a lot of different facets to that. And I know that this is a long background, but it's getting at sort of the history of what drove me into the space that I'm in now. And so what, what I did after the consulting firm is I got my master's degree in organizational psychology. What I found is that whether it was with experiential education or uh, experiential recreation in my undergraduate or postgraduate and the work that I did leading up to my master's degree, I got really jazzed up about working with people and ideas. The whole, I think if there's a guiding principle, it's been the whole what if mindset about helping people to get to that space. Like what if we were able to do this, you know, moonshot type of activities. 
And I kind of fell into financial services. And my job for the last 20 years or so has been working with business executives and entrepreneurs around teams, leadership, and marketing. And that eventually led me to where I am now. And I live in Boulder, Colorado. And I moved from New York City to join an organization called Janice Henderson. And so we had talked about this a little bit. They're really a leader in pushing the status quo. They're an asset manager, and they were pushing the status quo around how can we add to what is essentially a fungible product, right? There's something like 2,000 large cap equity funds out there. How do you differentiate when everybody's kind of looks the same? And so the stuff that I was doing, which we'll talk about, was really to help differentiate the firm as well as provide value to the people that would be consuming the product that Janice was putting out there. So that kind of has been what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I love it. The what if mindset. So basically today, I think that's a good mindset for our conversation. So for everybody that's listening, you're going to just shake out the scaries of like your normal status quo day. Okay. And you're going to embrace a what if mindset. This is a mindset shift with Michael. That's what we got here. So Janice has this thing with a really cool name. Wasn't it called like the Idea Lab or something? It had like a really jazzy name. It's gone through a couple different iterations. Now they call it Knowledge Labs, and it's composed of a couple different components. When I was there, it was just called simply Janus Labs. Okay. And what we did, at least in my function, was really working with the clients of the firm, as well as the clients of the clients. So you think about the clients of financial advisors and providing them with value. And we were delivering to them uh, content on two primary areas. One was around uh, what I would describe as like teams and practice management. And the other side was really around personal effectiveness. So we had a program on that we developed on uh, stress and stress management. We had a program that was built around the idea of brain health as you age. There was another program that was built around health and nutrition. And so those were very popular to deliver uh, directly to the clients of our clients, right? The patrons of financial advisors and financial professionals. But obviously, it was also very valuable for financial professionals, right? Those programs around health and wellness, they're good for anybody that that is uh, human. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, a lot of us. <laughs> most of us. Yeah, it's most, of, I say most, you know, there are a couple questions. Couple question marks, especially in our biz. Couple questionable ones out there, yeah. It's interesting. This is kind of a, a challenge, as I said, because when you become a founder- and or I guess if you're executive, but really I'm I'm kind of tapping into the founder mentality here because a lot of portfolio managers who work for a big, maybe Janice, let's say, and then they spin out and set up their own firm, they add another hat to the mix that they don't anticipate. And that is the hat of the entrepreneur. When you work at a big and you're a portfolio manager, you know, you're in your jazzy office, your fancy office, and you're doing your unique ability of investing and all the other stuff is magically taken care of for you. Just sort of happens. It's all happening. The sales is happening. You know, the compliance is happening. All the ops is happening. Everything's happening. You don't know how. And then when you become an entrepreneur, you realize, oh my gosh, I have to solve this now. And so the reason that I share that is because it's a different level of stress. It's a different level of building. 
it taps into parts of you that are uncomfortable or that maybe you've never even really worked on. You know, you've been perfecting your craft as an investment manager. You've never perfected your craft as an entrepreneur. And so I've been thinking a lot about this because it's one of the areas that could derail an investment boutique from succeeding. And I just want you to sort of help us all think through that. Yeah. So the first question I would say, and it's one facet of being an entrepreneur or starting your own firm, how many of the people that are listening to this podcast got into the business or the function that they're in because they wanted to manage people? Yeah. It's the most difficult part of the job, really. For many, many people, that is the most difficult part of the job. There are a couple people that I've met that along the way that have really embraced that and understand that people management, culture management, developing systems and processes for things like apprenticeship, rather than just hiring somebody into a job and expecting them to know exactly what to do and how to do it. Those are really challenging things. And that as an entrepreneur, starting your own firm, those are things that are going to be real. It's rare that you're going to hire all of the exact right people or even know how to go about the process of hiring and evaluating people. So that's just one example of this. But but the idea of embracing that discomfort, recognizing that, to quote one of my favorite coaches, Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there, and needing to change is, is critical. And so how do you help? I mean, I now feel like I've stepped into a therapy session and I'm really okay with that. I'm really okay with everyone listening into my therapy session. And so how do you coach founders to do that better? I mean, because it's a journey. It's a journey for all of us to learn this. Yeah. Well, number one is it's like the old joke about the light bulb and the psychologist. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb, Stacey? I don't know. (laughs) It only takes one but it takes a long time and the light bulb has to want to change. I feel like I should know that joke and I don't, but I love it. (laughs) I didn't make the joke up. It's just, it's a classic in in the field that I've been in. So I mentioned that I went to graduate school. I got a master's in organizational psychology and part of the work that I was doing there, the focus that I had there was really around teams and organizational dynamics and executive leadership development. And so people have to come to a point that they embrace this idea that there's more for me to know. I'm an imperfect human or I'm, an, I'm a work in progress. And one of the challenges, I think, in this industry that gets in the way of that, and, and in almost any industry, is that we're very outcome-oriented. We're very destination-focused. I want to hit a billion under management. I want to have X amount in revenue. We want to have this many clients that we serve. We want to be this percentage of the marketplace, whatever your metrics are. And it's good to have this. I don't want to diminish the importance or the significance of, of having outcomes. They are absolutely critically important. What I think is challenging, and as a newly minted entrepreneur myself, growing my business, one of the things that I think gets lost is the progress and the journey towards getting there. That's almost as important for a variety of reasons that we'll go into. It's almost as important as the destination itself. If all you have is the destination, then it becomes a binary thing. It's either you got there or you didn't. And that means it's success or failure. But I look at it as there's a spectrum of things. So 
it's the progress that you're making towards the outcome that you can celebrate along the way. And that's one of the things that I really try and focus on with my clients is, is looking at what are the small wins that we're making along the way? What are the improvements that are happening? What is the learning that we're incorporating into what we're doing? And as long as it's directionally correct, then we're heading in the right direction. That's so good. I mean, you often hear that quote that the journey is the thing, right? And yet it's very difficult for us, especially when you're building, because you sort of, as you said, you have an outcome, you have a result that means you've made it. The thing that I've learned through coaching that I've done, and this is a great venue to talk about this, is that that goalpost always moves. Yeah, you just said, like, you've made it. And my question is, okay, so now what? No, you've never made it because you tell yourself that. But as soon as you get there, you move the goalpost again. And so one of the things that I've tried to do and that I've learned is to measure backwards. I love what you said about celebrating the small wins. I want to pause here because I can just envision some of the people listening who are like, this is all really nice to have if you're a big shop, but like I'm grinding and you want me to celebrate small wins. And I like, yes, you need to, you need to. And so let's talk about that because it's like, yeah, this is nice to have when I've made it. And I'm using air quotes now, I'll think about doing this, but why is that? Like, to me, that's, you're not going to make it if you choose that mentality. Well, burnout's very real. And as an entrepreneur, you know, the heaviest thing in my office is my phone uh, (laughs) to try and pick it up and call clients. I'm surprised that I don't look like Dwayne Johnson from the amount of phone (laughs) lifting. It is the heaviest thing. I have a new appreciation for what, having worked at these bigs, you know, UBS, Allianz, and Janice Henderson, let's go back to what what you said, right? I'll do it when I make it. Well, look, at that point, when you quote unquote make it, the flywheel's running and it's going to be moving and throwing off revenue or or income or inflows. At that point, the motivation to kind of go back and say, okay, how do we incorporate these ideas now? Like build it with the end in mind. You hear that over and over again, but like, so there's a couple of things. One is burnout. That's the sort of table stakes here. Huge risk. Huge risk every day, grinding. I'm grinding, mm-hmm. Stacey. I'm, yep. I'm, I don't have time to stop and think about these things. Well, let me ask you, who and what is getting your best energy? If you're grinding every day and you're not taking time to recover, if you're not ending your day with, hey, listen, it may feel like you know maybe I didn't bring in any clients today, or maybe we didn't beat the market today, or maybe whatever it is, whatever your metric is for your destination, Where can you go back and say, you know what, even though those things didn't happen, I can't change outcomes. I can't even guarantee outcomes. Only thing I can guarantee is effort. Mm. So celebrating those little wins along the way and recognizing like one of the books that I'm reading is by a guy named Steve Magnus. I'm going to need to look up the name of the book because I'm reading like four books at one time, which we'll get to at the end. But one of the things that he talks about is when you're trying to measure effort, a lot of time people say like, well, let's go for the PR, mm-hmm. right? That's what matters is that I, I did better than I've ever done. I ran faster. I, I ran more miles. I, I cycled faster. We hit a bigger revenue target. What he says is look at the average. And if you're doing average or better, that's a better target. That's a small win. 
because you're going to increase your average then. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. So his book is called Do Hard Things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Steve Magnus. Yeah. So, okay. So keep going. So burnout is real. Measuring small wins prevents burnout. Why? Because internally you start feeling like you're accomplishing something towards the goal or, or how does that help? Like, why does that matter? Yeah. It's a really, really good and very complicated answer, but I'm going to try and simplify it. Oh, great. Of course. Yeah. What we're going to get into here briefly is brain chemistry and neurobiology. Okay. So our motivation is driven by a variety of things in our brains and in our environment, but the chemical that is more closely related to it is dopamine. And when we celebrate effort and when we celebrate small wins rather than just overall achievement, what we do is we give ourselves a little hit of dopamine. We give ourselves a little drip of that. And what that does over time is it raises our overall reservoir of dopamine. Everybody here that's listening has some reservoir of dopamine. Some have more, some have less. And when we tap into that to get us motivated, it diminishes our dopamine. And this is where things get really, really complicated. It diminishes our dopamine a little bit, but then that dip in dopamine then leads to action or inaction. We make a decision like we want to pursue that thing. So for your audience now, one of the things that we could do is a little thought experiment. So if you think right now for something, think about something that you currently do not have, but you really would like to have. It could be a vacation. It could be a tangible thing. It could be an outcome that you're looking for. So imagine it, really envision, envision you getting it. You have to tell me what it is. It doesn't matter to me. How do you feel thinking about the achievement of it? I'm like trying not to just start cheese grinning, which no one can see because it's a podcast. But yeah, Yeah. no, if you really imagine it, like I'm trying not to just have a huge grin on my face. Right. And that's the way that people feel. And what you're getting there is that's a little hit of dopamine. Is Just even the thought of getting this thing gives us a little jolt of dopamine. Now, what's going to happen over the next couple hours, minutes, whatever, is what goes up must come down. That's our body. Our body wants to be in stasis. It wants to equalize. So you just add a little hit. And now you're going to go down below baseline a little bit. And it's in that dip in baseline that you come to realize, I don't have this thing. (laughs) I I don't have it. There's a lack of it. And now I want to go get it. And your brain gets involved here. It says, like, is this a good thing to go get? Or is it a bad thing to go get? But now you're going to make a decision. So as you go along the way towards getting that thing, there may be a good distance between your thought of getting it, realizing that you don't have it, and then getting it, right? I may want to make X amount of dollars a year, and I'm making X minus 50. There's a distance between getting to X and where I am today. And there's lots of off-ramps. And this is one of the challenges, I think, with entrepreneurship, with even people that are in the bigs or people that have established businesses, is we have ideas. We have wants for ourselves, for our business, for people that we love. And they're great ideas. But then we start working towards them and there's lots of off-ramps. There's lots of places where we can just press the easy button. So the analogy here is, right, you think about the number of people that are climbing Everest and some of these huge peaks in the Himalaya and around the world is becoming greater and greater. Why? 
Because when you have a ton of money, you can hire somebody to basically carry you like a backpack up to the top of those mountains. <laughs> no, are you serious? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but really not that much. So these things that have previously been the domain and the realm of real effort and real energy output have become something that we can press the button to make it really, really easy. You remember when we were growing up, what was your favorite television show growing up when you were a kid, like when you were 10 or 11 years old? Oh, gosh. I mean, so that's past this. I was a big Sesame Street person when I was really young, but 10 or 11. I mean, I was like probably growing pains and family ties and those type of family sitcoms. Okay. Do you remember what day a week it came on? Ooh. It came on one day a week. I want to say Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it was like a Thursday. Okay. I remember it was for me, it was the Incredible Hulk with Luth Ferrigno and Dukes of Hazzard. And those came on back to back on Thursdays. Yeah. Thursday was a big day. Thursday was a big day. You had to wait, right? How many times have you fired up Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or Hulu or Tubi or whatever you use? And you're like, man, there's nothing to watch. Right? Yeah. It's the easy button. We become accustomed to yeah. easy. So I told you this get complicated. Ooh. Let me try mm-hmm. and pull myself back from like all of these different tentacles of thought. Okay. The idea here is that what makes it hard for entrepreneurs, for business owners, for leaders, is that there's lots of paths off of the track. There's lots of ways to bail out of this thing that is hard and that has a longer duration to what we would call completion. So in order to stay the course, celebrating success, small success, small wins, recognizing effort. I've got two kids and I learned early, maybe not early enough, but I learned that I could celebrate their wins, but what was more important was to celebrate their effort. Hey, I see that you're working really hard on this. That must make you feel really proud. I can say, I'm really proud of you for what I see you working really hard. Last night, my younger one was working on his AP World History exam and he was struggling. And I was like, yeah, I see that this is hard, but I'm really excited for how hard you're working. I can see how much you're putting into this. Are you an investment boutique looking to grow your business and need a little help? If you feel like you're fighting for the spotlight and, well, still stuck in the shadows of the bigs, join us in the Boutique Investment Collective, Havener's new membership community dedicated to the specialist in the investment industry. In the collective, we'll guide you through the billion-dollar blueprint we've used to help boutiques add over $30 billion in AUM. You'll refine your story, focus on your ideal target market, and practice your pitch. You'll rethink your marketing materials, rewrite your emails, and refresh your differentiators. We'll even help you step up your LinkedIn game and give your profile a makeover. You want to grow your biz, we've got your back. Learn more about the collective, the curriculum, and the amazing coaches who will help you on your journey. Visit havenercapital.com slash collective. High five. Hope to see you in a coaching session soon.
I love that so much on all the levels, a human parent level and as a leader from a business perspective, because to translate that, that's one of the things that's challenging as you're building your team. Because just as you've been teaching and coaching us as founders and leaders to celebrate the small wins, a lot of times with salespeople, we celebrate the deal closing. We celebrate the dollars. And to your point, I've really tried to, I've had to learn this myself and I've tried to to coach our leadership team around this too. Celebrate the process not just the dollars or the outcome. So it's such a great kind of addendum to the lesson you're teaching us because it's not just what we have to learn how to do the mindset shift for ourselves to avoid burnout. It's also something that we as leaders and managers of our team, especially when it's a boutique and it's a small team, you have to celebrate the small wins of your people and celebrate the work that they're doing and the process that they're following, not just the million bucks that came in or the 10 million or whatever. A hundred percent. And I'll even add another layer on top of that. We can look at AUM or gross sales as our desired outcome. And again, I really don't want your audience to think that I'm some sort of like, that outcomes don't (laughs) matter and right, it's all rainbows and butterflies. Absolutely not. I get it. Those are important. Those are what put food on the table. And I agree with that. But think about purpose. That's really the other piece of the puzzle here. So the classic example years ago, especially, you know, the one that um, that Cynic uses is Apple, right? Apple sells a product that everybody else can sell, same type of thing. But they, for better or worse, have focused on what are we trying to do in the space beyond just the product. And I'm gesturing because I've got one in front of me. Yeah. The product itself, it's think different. That was the one that really made the impression on me is that that's what they're here to try and do. And so every boutique, every financial advisor, they're trying to invest money on behalf of their clients to make more money, right? To throw off revenue. But what is the purpose? So if you can embrace that part of this, like that I know that by having a conversation with my clients about, let's use ESG, right? If that's part of your purpose, that should be something to celebrate along the way, that we're doing that, that we're engaging in those conversations. And there's a reason why people say trust the process. It's not trust the outcome. That's right. You know, it's interesting. I was actually on a podcast this morning and we talked about this. So I'm just going to bring it up because I'm very curious what you'd say here. This is more maybe on the allocator side, on the advisor side than the asset manager, but maybe there's a lesson here for asset managers too. When you talk with clients, to your last point, when you sit down and talk with clients, the bulk of the time typically is spent on like the performance. Like here's your portfolio and here's how it did. Here Some are the people. results. Some people. Right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's my point is like, is that really what we should be focusing on? Because it kind of goes to what you're saying here about the outcome versus the, the journey. Like there's more going on in the value that we bring than just that statement 
with the percentages. And it kind of goes to this idea that there's more to this than numbers. Like this is, yes, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers biz. I get it. But is it really? It's really a people business. So like, what else can we be talking about besides did you beat the market or didn't you? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of personal opinions about this. I don't think it's an either or. Okay. So I think it's a choice. And there are going to be people listening to this and people that are not listening that believe that <laughs> it's all about the numbers. It's all that matters. And that's what I'm focused on. And they're hugely, wildly, insanely successful firms, people, organizations that do that. So I'm not here to say that that's not a bad strategy. However, when I think about satisfaction, when I think about engagement, when I think about meaning in life, and let's face it, we're living in a, a world that's increasingly complex and at times feels like it's a, a little bit insane itself. I think people are craving meaning. And so this idea of connecting with people on a more human level, and I'll, I relate it back to financial advisory practices. I know there are a lot of the people listening to this are from that boutique space. and I don't think it's tremendously different, but it's table stakes. Everybody has performance numbers. Everybody has their investment philosophy. Everybody has their their performance against the market. And I think that there's a space here that's emerging and that is becoming more prevalent that it's a means to an end. So I think there's a reason why something like ESG has become both controversial, but also much more of a focus for a lot of the investor segment. Because people want to know that they're making a difference in the world in the way that they want. So I often say to my financial advisory clients, if you're not having conversations with your clients about what this money means to them, then you're missing a huge opportunity because they can go across the street and get the same products and probably similar performance. So if you don't connect with people on an emotional, on an existential level, what's to prevent them from going across the street? Is your performance really that much better? Is your process that much better? Oh, that's so good. That's like the mic drop moment for me. And I mean, do you really want to live and die by that? Because everyone's going to underperform. So if you say that that's the thing, then you better be okay when the person who bought that outperformance sells your underperformance and have fun with that roller coaster. I mean, it's brutal. So I love what you said about we're all craving meaning. And I think that's so true. As a storyteller, I think that stories can bring meaning to life. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the ESG is such a great example because it's so tangible and it's so it's such a direct line. But if you're even if you're not ESG, okay, like even if you're sitting there, you're a small cap manager or you're a private equity manager or a VC or private credit. One of the best stories I've found that's sort of accessible for fund managers is to tell portfolio stories. So instead of talking about the performance. Talk about the investments that you made that got you there, right? And give people a chance to kind of get closer to what they own, what they're investing in. 
When you get a manager telling stories about investments they've made and what those companies are doing and what those companies are trying to achieve, the meaning those companies are trying to achieve, it can bring people in. So even if you're not in an area or an asset class that maybe has such a direct, tangible ESG impact kind of thread to it, I think there are many ways to talk about meaning with your investors. I totally agree with that. And and one of the ways that I like to help people think about this is not so much about who you are, but who you're not is one way to think through that. Oh, I love that. That's, yes. Talk that through. I love this. Absolutely. I'll give you the example that I love because I'm, a, I'm an avid skier and one of my favorite mountains in the, maybe my favorite mountain in the United States is Snowbird. It's in Utah. And Snowbird is a unique mountain in a lot of ways, uh, just like its neighbor next door, Alta. And they did this campaign. It was called the One Star Campaign. And it's been adopted by other people now. But instead of their five-star reviews, the guy that built it was a guy named Dave Amaralt. And it was genius. And the idea was they posted all of these one-star reviews. It's too steep. There's too much snow. There's no beginner terrain. <laughs> There's no nightlife up here. And they, you know, this was their advertising campaign. It was one star and then yeah. the quote. I love it. And I think that that can be really valuable for number one is they're embracing by representing what they're not. They're embracing in a lot of ways who they actually are, which is an expert skier mountain with a ton of snow and really focuses on the skiing. So I think there's a lot of value in that. So we're as much about what we're not as we are about what we are. So I think helping people to recognize and be able to tell the story of, yeah, we don't do that. And here's why is valuable. Yes. And you know what? It's sometimes easier too, because when you ask somebody like, tell me what you stand for, you know, what are your values? It's just so easy to fall into this trap of truisms. Well, you know, we really value trustworthiness. And it's like, well, okay. (laughs) I hope so. Good. (laughs) You know, I hope so. Because the alternative is pretty, pretty darn scary, right? So that's kind of a tough, it's tough to get unique and differentiated when you say what you stand for. I think to your point, when you say what you stand against or what you're not or what you don't do, it's easier to tap into that. And it's a great exercise and something that should give you incredible pride. Your example with, was it Snowbird? Is that the name of the mountain? I obviously can't ski there. I'd be terrified. But I love the exercise because in some ways, it's kind of like that scene in Eight Mile where Eminem kind of owns all the the disses. Right. He turns it around on... He turns it around. He turns it around. And it actually takes something that's a negative and sort of makes it a positive. It's like, look, I know what you're going to say. So I'm just going to say it. It's a brilliant attract and repel move. I love that. That was great. One of the classic nightclubs in New York City, it's closed now. It's called Output and um, it's in Brooklyn. And their tagline was, we're for anybody, but we're not for everybody. Right? So good. It says everything. And I think that's what's challenging for us as we sit here, you know, as entrepreneurs building something and grinding is 
There's that, a, a mentality that's like, well, all money's green. So, you know, if somebody wants to give me their money, I'm going to take it. I'm for everyone. Right. And that's super dangerous. It's super dangerous, even though it's a very tempting thing to do. The other thing I think it does is it would force us to create really shitty marketing. Because when you try to be something for everyone, you can't stand for anything at all because you might offend someone. And so like, we've got to get over that. Like, It's okay to say, I serve this type of client. That's my ideal target market. I talked to somebody this morning whose whole practice is on specialty physicians. Great. Then just be that. That's okay to lean into. Right. And the fear that I find and fear is a big part of this conversation, right? You and I talked, uh, you know, leading up to this about the idea of the firms, they get big and I would call them fat and happy, right? It's like, oh, well, what if I don't want to rock the boat? I don't want to take an unnecessary risk. I don't want to, we're so confined by fear. And I think one of the pieces of advice that I try and give to my clients is what's the smallest amount of change that you can commit to, right? Begin with that, Begin with the deviation from the norm that is something that you can sustain and commit to. It doesn't have to blow everything up, but it can be a meaningful thing. So I mentioned that I worked for Albert Bound. One of the things that we would have to do is teach people about orienteering and map reading skills. And the idea, you take a bearing, and I'm not going to get into the technicals of reading maps and how to navigate in the backcountry or even use a compass, but you take a bearing And if you're off by two or three degrees, over 100 yards, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Over 1,000 yards, it's going to make more. And over miles, it's going to make more and more. So you take a reading of where you are, you identify where it is you want to go, and then you measure along the way. So this all comes back to that idea of celebrating effort, of recognizing improvement, of doing the average or better. Those are ways that you can start to generate movement and generate change that is not overwhelming. We're not looking to completely scrap somebody's business plan or their marketing materials or anything. What we're looking to do is help them ensure that they're constantly evolving and evolving in the direction that they have a passion for, right? It's easy to be like everybody else, to be a carbon copy. I love that. And so basically... Is it? It's working backwards in some ways because you identify the goal or the outcome or kind of where you want to go. And then what you're saying is, okay, then next, I think the, the way you worded it was like, what's the smallest change you can make that gets you closer? So I think it allows us, you know, that whole idea of like just bucketing or chunking a big goal into smaller goals. This is something that's really challenging for boutiques, by the way, especially let's go back to our example of I was a portfolio manager at Janice. I leave. I set up my own firm. I, you know, I was managing $3 billion and now I'm managing $30 million and it happens to be my money and my friends and my family. And you're like, okay, now, now what? And the number is so big and the goal feels so far away that it's easy to sort of throw in the towel. It's easy to say like, it's not happening fast enough and I'm not close enough to where I want to be. And so, you know what? Like I quit. And so how do we help our clients and how do we, if we're a boutique founder, have more perspective on what, on playing the long game? Yeah. So the research would show 
that breaking your goals into 12-week chunks is optimal. So identifying where do I want to be in 12 weeks, focusing as much as you can singularly on that thing. You can have multiple goals. You can have multiple metrics that you want to measure. But the research shows that breaking it into a 12-week period that you're going to be striving towards something. And by the way, if it is something that you want to plan out over a year, break it down into four 12-week periods or whatever it's going to take for you, these quarterly objectives, but really being focused on the actions and activities that need to be done each day to get towards that. So the research shows that the more specific you can be, the better chances there are that you will achieve that goal. And I got to give credit where credit's due. A lot of this research comes from uh, listening to Andrew Huberman and his wildly successful podcast. But the whole idea around goal setting is, is be specific, break it into smaller chunks. And when we and going back to the specific piece, if we use something like, I want to uh, learn a language, we can translate this to anything, but I want to learn a language. I want to learn Spanish. I want to learn 300 words in Spanish by the end of January. And the way that I'm going to accomplish that is by spending 30 minutes each day memorizing those 300 words. I'm going to break that down into 20 words at a time. And I'm going to work uh, for those 20 minutes each day actively uh, memorizing those things. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to be able to lift 50 pounds over my head 20 times in a row, three times a week. So that means that I got to get, right? You, you get very granular and specific. Where things get challenging is in the execution of those things. We have to overcome our uh, static inertia, right? Oh, shit, I got to get up and go to the gym. I, I need to do another 10 things, right? So how do we do that? If we're motivated to go do it, if we want to get up, if we can't wait to get up from what we're doing and go, then the motivation technique is to envision what it will be like when we go to the gym, how we're going to feel when we go there, how we're going to feel about doing the activity. That's when we're motivated to do it. When we're not motivated to do it, when we're like, shit, I got to get up and go to the gym. I don't want to do that. What we want to do is envision failure very vividly spend time envisioning what will it mean if I don't achieve this goal, if I don't get the outcome that I want. And those are just some simple techniques to help get people motivated and moving in the right direction. Human motivation is very challenging. It's a challenging thing. We get a lot of thoughts in our head. You don't find this problem with dogs or uh, mountain lions. I love that. The motivation piece, it kind of reminds me of what you were saying earlier about your phone being the heaviest thing in your office. And the other thing it had me thinking about was fund managers will go say something like this, like, okay, so I have this asset goal, whatever it might be. And in order to get there, like if I'm following your advice, I'm like, okay, Michael said I have to break this down. What they're going to do is they're going to say, well, I need to, if I want to get my first 100 million, then I need to get 25 million in the first quarter, okay? And so then that's what they're focused on. Where I would push back is to say, like, 
okay, but you don't have very much control over how much money somebody is going to allocate to you. So perhaps a different way to think about it is not about the dollars, but it's about the number of investors and the activities. Now I feel like I'm really been trained by Michael here and the activities and the effort you can do to meet those investors. And you can't control whether it's 25 million, but you can control how many investors you reach out to and hopefully, you know, get to a place where you're more predictably being able to achieve number of meetings and, you know, all those things. It's a huge mindset shift. I think for a lot of people, it is. It's taking their focus off of the outcome and building into the activity or the effort associated with it. So if we're going back to the heaviest thing in my office, which is my phone, I need to send or make 30 phone calls a week. And those 30 phone calls a week will lead to hopefully 15 discussions about the idea of type two fun. Those 15 discussions about type two fun will then lead to seven or eight people who agree to a free coaching session with me as a thank you for them giving their ideas about type two fun. And out of those eight or seven, maybe I'll get one or two people who are ready to have a conversation about becoming a client. So I can't control whether they become a client, but I can control how many phone calls I make. Hopefully those phone calls will then lead to the opportunity to have the conversations about type two fun and then so on and so forth. Perfect example. So it helps to create the process, celebrate the effort along the way. Hey, listen, I made the 30 phone calls. That's the part that I can control. Is all of what we just talked about under type two fun? Or what is type two fun? And how does it relate to everything we're sort of talking about today? Two things about this. Number one is it has nothing to do with diabetes (laughs) at all. Number two is that it's fun, F-U-N, not fund. It's a type two fun. So what is type two fun? Yeah. Let's start with type one fun. Type one fun is all the stuff that we do that is fun 100% of the time. So it's, I noticed that you like walking on the beach. I do. For you, your daily strolls on the beach, that might be type one fun. For other people, it might be going to have sushi or pizza. For you, probably listening to hip hop, old school hip hop. Type one fun. It's 100% of the time, it's fun, and I don't have to use a lot of effort for it to be fun. For me, it's a lift served powder skiing. When I get to go to a resort in the middle of the week and there's nobody there and it's a powder day and it's great. We should have those experiences. They're great. There's lots of drinking cocktails on a boat. Type one fun. Type two fun is the things that we engage in that we intentionally do that we know are going to be hard when we do them. So we did talk about this a little bit, but we didn't give it the name that that I'm associating with it. So it's running a marathon. It's uh, starting a new business. It's uh, changing firms. If you're a financial advisor and moving from one firm to the other, it's starting a team. It's choosing to take your children to Disney, which I've never done, but I've heard that this is a type two fun activity. It's going to be difficult when you do it, But the keys in it are that we do it intentionally and we do it because we know that we're going to get either stronger or more resilient. We're going to build memories. We're going to have something to brag about at the other end of it. 
But while we're doing it, we're probably going to say, was I out of my mind in thinking that this was going to be a good idea? But we get through the other end of it and we say, you know what? That was worth it. I grew as a human being. So I'll, I'll have you do another quick thought experiment here. Think about all the things that you did over the last month that would fall into type one fun. You chose to do these things. You, right? you don't have to tell me what they are. Yeah. Uh, we're going to keep this PG, right? <laughs> all the type one fun things that you did. Okay. <laughs> so you think like, all oh, right. You could think of them as like they were indulgences. They were things that... And you might have earned them. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. Let me make that very clear. So you've got those. You know what they are. Now I want you to think about the single hardest thing that you chose to do in the last month that you intentionally engaged in. Maybe it was folding the laundry. Maybe it was raking the leaves in your backyard because they've started to fall down. Maybe it was making a difficult phone call to one of your investors or clients. Or maybe it was picking up the heaviest thing in your office, the phone, whatever it is, I just want you to think about what that thing is for you. Do you have it? Yes, I do. Which one are you more proud of? Oh yeah. What a great thought experiment. Yeah, definitely the type two fun. And you know what I love about what you said was you tied it to entrepreneurship. And I think that's such, I mean, that's what I thought of. I mean, every day as an entrepreneur, is a roller coaster. I mean, some days you could wake up thinking this is the best business I ever could be doing. By lunchtime, you want to close the doors. You want to die. Yeah. <laughs> you want to die. You're like, why did I ever think this was good? This is horrible. And you know what? If you're feeling that as an entrepreneur, welcome to the circus. Welcome to the club. Welcome right? to the club. But here's the thing. It's so worth it. It's so rewarding. And so I think it's interesting when you say type two fun, because some people might say, well, it's not always that fun, but that's the point. Is that the point? It's funny that you say that. When I've talked about this with my colleagues and confidants and advisors and people that are you know, mentors to me, they're like, yeah, but work isn't fun. My response is, well, why not? It can be, right? <laughs> and isn't that all mindset? Like, there's a certain thing when I'm backcountry skiing or I'm backpacking or I'm on a big, long bike ride and everything hurts or the people that are going to run the marathon on Sunday in New York, they're going to get over that bridge. And I've run that marathon. They're going to get over the bridge from the Bronx back to New York and they got to run up Fifth Avenue. And let me tell you, Fifth Avenue from 110th Street up to mm, probably the corner of the park, 57th or 59th Street, that's like an uphill. It's not a huge steep uphill, but that's it's going to hurt a lot. And you're going to want to quit, but they keep going. And when I did it, one of the things that helped me keep going, aside from the charity that I was running for, and the, was really saying, like I got, I got to choose to do this. So this mentality of not, I have to do this, but I get to do this mm -hmm. is really important. Yes. And also saying like, boy, with a smile on your face, boy, this sucks, right? It can <laughs> yeah. really help to kind of like, it helps you push through those moments where things are the most difficult. All those things, backpacking and backcountry skiing and, and that type of stuff, it's hard. There are times where it's really painful and it hurts and you're hungry and it's uncomfortable. But- 
the idea that I try and hold in my head, and the same thing that I try and do when I'm picking up that phone, is I get to do this. Yeah. And boy, isn't this fun. Gosh, that's perfect. Right? Even if it doesn't feel good. You know what? That's so great. And in some ways, I'm glad we sort of ended with that because that's such a powerful message for people to take away from this podcast. That even when it feels super difficult, it's still a choice you made and you get to do it. And if you have that mindset, it really does change the journey in a positive way. Okay, I want to end with, this is not a thought exercise, but I feel like we've done so much. I don't know what to call this. This is an authenticity exercise. I don't know. I'm going to need to work on my phrasing. It's my version of Proust's questionnaire. And I have just a couple questions that let us get a sense of who you are. Yeah, fuck. Fuck is my favorite curse word. (laughs) So you know it. That's like James Lipton, right? Okay. (laughs) That's one of my fave old shows. All right. What book inspires you? I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy for fiction. Mm. I think that what he writes is brilliant. Be the Hero by Noah Blumenthal, Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gradara. Oh, I haven't read that yet. It's great. Is it? Okay. It's really good. And then the one that I just started last night is Wealth 3.0 by Kristen Kefeller, Jaffe, and Grubman. And it is a great book around the evolution of family wealth and uh, wealth planning. Okay, so that's those are great ideas to add to your reading list. Well, this is going to be interesting, given your backcountry outward bound vibes. What place inspires you? What's your happy place? Japan. Not at all what I thought. Ballston Beach in Truro, Massachusetts in late August. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And that's a good one. Anywhere in the backcountry of Colorado during the winter going skiing. It's so good. So great. Yeah. It's pretty magical being out there. There's there's really nothing like it. That sense of quiet. It's amazing. That sense of yeah. vastness and just peace and oh. quiet. And oh. those moments are special. Crazy good. Like, that's why I keep going back. Yeah. And is that type one fun or type two for you? Oh, it's type two for sure. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. All right. Now let's pretend you're giving a talk to entrepreneurs in a huge stadium, before you take the stage, what song do they play as your walkout anthem? I don't think a lot of people are going to know what this is, but it's Watermelon in Easter Hay by this guy right here, who is Frank Zappa. Oh my gosh. It's one of his classic guitar solos. It's a beautiful song. Okay, don't mind me. It's the song that I walked down the aisle to when I was getting married. It was my my last song. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so good. Okay, well, I do not know that song, but I will be listening to it after this podcast. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Astronaut (laughs) or stand-up comedian, one or the other. I'll take either one. (laughs) It's just so great because it's like, Not what you expect somebody to say. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Politician. Yeah, that that comes up a lot. That's a commentary, isn't it? Okay. And now for a more introspective one. Last question. What do you want people to say about you after you've retired or left the industry? I'd want them to say that I'm a better person for having known that guy. Oh, that's really beautiful. I love that, Michael. This, and you know what? I will say my sort of parting thoughts, and then I want I want you to give yours as well. 
is that as an entrepreneur, having a coach may seem like a luxury because a lot of entrepreneurs bootstrap and every dollar really matters. And I can tell you from personal experience that getting a coach, getting somebody I could talk to about the things that are lonely about entrepreneurship or challenging about entrepreneurship changed not only my business, but my life. And so I encourage people to to change how you think about coaching. It is it is not a nice to have, in my opinion. It's an investment. It's not a cost. That's right. And Michael, if people want to follow along what you're doing, what you're thinking about, how can they do that? Well, certainly the LinkedIn is one of the great ways to get your message out there. And I've been embracing that a lot more and more. If people want to go and read more about type two fun activity, they can go to michaelfutterman.com or the worst URL that you've ever heard, which is www.type2, and you got to spell two out, T-W-O, fun, F-U-N, consulting.com. And any parting words? My parting words are that we have a choice in the way that we choose. We have a choice in how we interpret the events that are happening around us. We can choose to look at them as happening to us, or we can look at them as opportunities for us to respond in a different way. And I think that that's really at the core of a lot of the work that I do with my clients is helping them interpret things differently. So well said. Thank you for being here, Michael. Thank you, Stacey. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment values may fluctuate, and past performance is not a guide to future performance. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement by Stacey Havener or Havener Capital Partners.